This is a Ranieri & Co. and Headline Productions podcast. Around the world, sports betting has been growing in popularity. And it's not by accident. It's hard to watch any sporting event now without at least some exposure to sports betting advertising. Be that on the side of fields, on television, or on social media. As sports betting companies fight for their lucrative market share, the barrage of marketing is relentless. It's hardly a new issue. Kids have been quoted spruiking the odds well before they know what the odds actually mean. We know that advertising works. <laughs> we don't need to see that advertising, particularly about bonus bets, makes people gamble more because we know that it will. Otherwise, they would not be spending their billions of dollars a year on advertising. I'm Emma Murray. And today on The Long Haul, we're going to explore the complex reality of the new normal of sports betting. And just a warning, this episode contains some strong language. If you or someone you know is having problems with gambling, contact Gambler's Helpline on 1800 858 858 or at gamblershelp.com.au. And even if you might have lost your last cent of whatever you've got... They'll still check in, hi, how are you going? Making sure, firstly, that you're alive because you're a customer. They still want you back. As long as you're alive, you're a customer. Australia prides itself on its betting history. Think the Melbourne Cup or two up on Anzac Day. The story of luck and chance has been woven into our national narrative. But we're also a nation that loses more per capita to gambling than any other country in the world. On average, that amounts to an incredible $24 billion a year. But from those incredible losses also come gains. Everyone from broadcasters to sporting clubs and government coffers generate huge amounts of money from this uneasy relationship. In this episode, To simplify things, we'll be referring to figures from Victoria. One of the things that is always emphasised in sports betting commercials is that having a bet with your mates is normal. And with 32% of 18 to 24-year-old men now gambling on sport in Victoria, it is. I was interested to hear about the experience of sports betting from the perspective of an elite athlete. My name's Josh Bruce, uh, play AFL for the Western Bulldogs in Melbourne and I've played 150 games, got two kids at home, Poppy and Augie and the wife Pip. I came in around 2010, um, you know, it was probably just starting out then I would, I think, like, you know, and now considering how prevalent it is, it feels like you can't turn the TV on without being inundated with with advertisements. On average, you're talking about 374 ads per day and that the top three groups that are exposed to those ads, so number one is our 0 to 11-year-olds, number two is our 18 to 24-year-olds and then number three is our 12 to 17-year-olds.
So when you say 374 ads, are yeah. you talking on television, radio, social media, billboards a day? Is that all of that combined? No, that's just free-to-air television. And then on top of that, we have the social media and radio and we do. everything else. Yes. That's a little bit frightening, isn't it? It's a lot. Tanya Fletcher is from the Victorian Responsible Gambling Foundation. Research they did last year showed 87% of AFL fans thought that adolescents are seeing too much sports betting advertising. Indeed, it's safe to say most people would think that 374 ads per day on free-to-air TV alone is too much. So how did we get here? There are a few few things that happened in the early 2000s, I guess. So the first thing was that um, the Northern Territory started licensing sports betting operators to operate nationally. The second thing that happened was that there was a high court case that said, well, if those operators should be then able to advertise nationally. So it meant that a lot of state-based legislation, including that in Victoria, was suddenly uh, not enforceable anymore. And so the gateway to sports betting advertising was suddenly wide open in a way it hadn't been prior to 2009. And then connected with that, you had a number of um, sports betting operators entering the market. And so there's been a lot of fierce competition going on, which again, increases the amount of advertising they do because they're all looking for market share. The relationship between sports betting and government is complex. Because of the Northern Territory's lucrative deal with sports betting companies, this meant that state governments around Australia weren't getting their fair share of gambling revenue. In essence, they weren't getting tax in the states where those losses were occurring. Understandably annoyed by this, the state governments decided to introduce a point of consumption tax. In Victoria, for example, this tax is currently 10% of overall losses. When it comes to online gambling losses, Surprisingly, Victoria doesn't publish what these are. But by using the tax collected, minus a few licensing fees, we can work these losses out. And that's where this story becomes interesting. Pre-COVID, the uh, annual spend in Victoria on pokies uh, was around $2.7 billion, and the annual spend on sports betting was um, around $1.65 billion. So there's been a 42% increase in sports betting during COVID. So it's gone from 1.65 billion in 2019-20 to 2.34 billion in 2020-21. Right. And well, what about pokies? Yeah. So pokies has actually decreased because we haven't they haven't been of open course. for years because the pokies venues have been closed. So we're reaching this really interesting tipping point uh, in relation to uh, the amount of spend that's happening on pokies versus the amount of spend that's happening on sports betting. Is this one a problem that we're not hearing about that is being part of the COVID pandemic and we're not talking about it, we're not hearing it? I, this is the first I'm hearing yeah. that. Because we, we're not seeing the full impact of it yet. Uh, because if, as, as we suspect from um, the small pieces of research we've been able to do during the pandemic, it's not an increase in the number of people gambling, it's an increase in the spend of people that were already gambling then we can expect that there are some people that are heading into troubled waters that perhaps hadn't previously. 
After the break, we're going to hear more from Josh Bruce about the real impact of online gambling on elite athletes. Loneliness is indicative of modern society. It affects everyone at some point. It's part of the human condition. Thanks to Medibank, We Are Lonely is a podcast that seeks to demystify loneliness. Follow the journey of four diverse 20-somethings on their search for connection. Young Australians have never been more lonely, yet loneliness is rarely discussed and often misunderstood. Season two of the We Are Lonely podcast is part of Medibank's 10-year commitment to reduce chronic loneliness in Australia. We Are Lonely is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Search for We Are Lonely and listen today. Do you think we're getting close that sports betting is going to become the new pokies, is going to become the problem gamblers, uh, uh, our sports bettors? Uh, it, it's more, the way I would more frame it is that it's um, the pokies aren't going away anytime soon and that this will just be another area over and above that. Sports betting is very fast growing and I, I think those stats just, when COVID's just accelerated that. Uh, so yes, you're absolutely right. So pokies have been there for a long time and we're very familiar with the, I think the harm that they can cause, whereas sports betting something that's still relatively new um, but um, is accelerating This is interesting because the narrative I've always heard is that sports betting is just a bit of fun, whereas pokies is where most of the real problem gambling occurs. My name's uh, Dr Matt Stevens, a senior research fellow at Menzies School of Health Research based in Darwin. Most of my work is around gambling research, particularly um, looking at gambling policy. Online gamblers, you're looking at around 4% of them come up as experiencing problem gambling. So that's at the the higher end. Whereas amongst your non-online gamblers, it was around 1%. Yeah, you're looking at around three to five times higher. And I think it is because of the accessibility on their phone. And um, they also gamble on more different types of gambling. We're now starting to get a better grip on how gambling affects other people. And I think that will be the next focus. So whether it will be smoking secondhand smoke, drinking, the, the collateral damage and the violence associated with someone drinking, car accidents. So you're looking at that secondary damage that the product's causing. And, and, and definitely what we're finding in like this national study found around 9% of adults indicated that someone else's gambling had negatively affected them and they'd been harmed by someone else's gambling. So I think that's a, a more important stat because the industry will love to say, only 1% of the population that's problem gambling, but when you can say 10% of the population is actually harmed by gambling, that's, that's, that's a lot of people. You know, that's 2.5 million people. We, we need to better understand how often these harms are occurring. And again, that just comes back to, you know, the more you gamble, the, the, there's a very strong association with gambling problems. Once you start looking at First Nations communities and once you start looking at recently arrived migrant communities, you get a, a, a much more challenging picture at times as well. One of the big challenges with gambling is the stigma attached to it. What that means is, is that people who gamble and are having problems with their gambling are very unlikely to tell anybody at all. So 80% of gamblers um, that are experiencing problems don't tell anybody. So around 20% actually seek help and only about 10% actually seek formal help. 
Um, and we know through the research that a lot of that is to do with stigma, so shame. And so what that means is that often someone can end up in quite a serious in quite serious trouble before anyone even knows that there's a problem. To put this simply, the true extent of gambling harm is more than likely to be much higher than current predictions. As harm increases with this unlimited online access, attempts to minimise this have been seen by many to just be scratching the surface. Taglines like gamble responsibly have not only been shown to be ineffective in changing behaviour, but they also put the emphasis back on the gambler's lack of control. The feeling that you get is like nothing else. Like, it is the shittest, most like self-loathing feeling. You just feel like the biggest idiot. Like, it's like, what the fuck was I thinking? You know, and like, but in hindsight, but when you're in that like zone, it's scary. And it's such a cycle, it's like, well, I'm gonna try and win it back or whatever. And then when you and when you get a win, it's not like, oh yes, had a win. It's like, thank fuck, like the relief. It's the relief, like in your chest. It's not like, oh yay, like it's like, oh my god, like you know, thank God, type thing. Like it's just shit for you. And there's so many like little things in the apps that make it even more challenging like you can deposit money at the drop of a hat like no issues credit cards whatever anything you, they'll take it but if you try and get money out so you can't deposit 500 bucks from a credit card or whatever and then take that money out it has to be turned over and read one and then for you to withdraw it you have to go through so many hoops like you have to verify your cards your bank accounts like your identity and it takes days right to do this but so by the time like say someone who's impatient has won money and they've gone to withdraw it on a Saturday afternoon. Most people would probably keep re-gambling, you know, they make it really difficult. And when you experience that feeling of relief, is it then like, great, I'm getting out quick. I'm just, at, I'm, I'm not doing that ever again. That was horrible. Yeah, but then you crawl back. I've been with guys who have been in the hole, like a fair bit of money and I'm just watching them pun and five, 10, 20 grand down and then they get back to even and they're like, they, they get that feeling. And they're like, oh, sure, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. And then, like, obviously, the next day or whatever they're doing it. So I've been at three footy clubs, you know, in two different states. And it's been, you know, more and more normalised as my career's progressed. A lot of the group chats just seem to revolve around it. So Talking to Josh reminded me of talking to my son, Will. When he turned 18, he had a brief wrestle with sports betting that took us all by surprise. I asked him what made him set up a sports betting account in the first place. All my mates had them, I guess. So I just decided to give it a try. And I thought I knew basketball so well that I'd be able to make money off it. Did you think that you had a knowledge of basketball that other people didn't have? Just because I knew it so well, I'd be able to break it down and pick easy winners. Is there a level of connection with your mates when you're betting? Yeah. Well, like, I mean, if they're all betting, it's kind of like you're all more invested. And if you don't do it, you feel like you're left out. Will's relationship with sports betting was brief, 
But what was clear in his experience was that certain products that were being offered made him feel like he just couldn't lose. You were attracted straight away to the multis, is that right? Yeah, the same game multis, that's what they were, yeah. And what was attractive about same game multis? Because you could boost your odds so easy by picking things that you think are certain to happen. And when you placed one of your multis, did you feel that it was a definite, like it was so definite that it was virtually free money? Yep, pretty much. And it made watching it more enjoyable. You're more invested in it. So as soon as you're watching it with money on the line, you're more invested in watching the game. Well, there's very little risk assessment that goes on by governments when a online gambling company, for example, introduces some type of new way of gambling. There's a betting company at the moment that's created a system where mates can sit at a pub and they can all be linked together on their mobile app. And the other thing is the, the multis. So this is where a gambler is allowed to link three bets or more together and they sort of get a cumulative odds that gives them a better return, but essentially they're a low chance of winning on those sort of bets. So it sounds good for the punter. You're going to get 16 back to your $1 spent, but very rarely will those three bets or whatever it is, number of bets come up. The investment that Will talks about feeling when he bet on a same-game multi had a different effect on the people who were being bet on. Players like Josh. It all came to a head for me last year when I was in the club and it was the COVID season. So, um, you know, the games were shorter. Um, you had less opportunity to play, to kick goals, to get disposals. Um, and it felt like that the gambling and the, the impact on the players was way bigger than it ever had been before. It was magnified to a level that I've never seen. Like guys were getting inboxes after every game, you know, 20, 30 inboxes, abuse. Um, you ruin my same game multi. Here's my bank details, transfer me this. But it got really personal. Like guys were getting death threats, um, you know, racist things. You know, I was getting all sorts of horrible comments made about me and it's, it, it just can't, you can't really hide from it. So that then must set up particular athletes to receive more abuse than others. You're a key forward you're more likely to be in a multi than, you know, a key defender. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the markets are disposals and goals generally, so midfielders and forwards. And I would presume that you guys, you are sports lovers, obviously. You play sport. You uh, would tick the box of young men who are chasing that risky behaviour and, adrenaline rush and do you think that you guys you know are driven to have that bet because you love that feeling of winning you love that feeling of competing yeah I reckon there's definitely um I mean all those things make complete sense don't they and you do see from time to time you know guys that have lost lost everything or you know when it finally comes out of the media but you, you do hear a lot of stories about you know, ex-players or players, you know, losing hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, definitely in that high-risk category. When you're inebriated or drunk or whatever, then you, your risk-taking behaviour goes up. So, you you know, you're probably cognitive impaired as well. So it kind of adds to the whole thing. Around your mates, do you feel there's a correlation between alcohol and gambling? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they're hand in glove, really, it feels like. Do you ever think about when you retire and, you know, you lose that outlet every week of competing and getting that dopamine hit? Do you fear that that's when gambling for you or for other people can become a real risk? No, oh, absolutely, yeah. I'm, I've, after I had that period probably a couple of years ago, um, you know, I've really ramped it down. And I'll, I'll probably go as far to say as once I'm not playing footy, like I wouldn't even consider gambling those amounts of money or whatever because you're not earning it's it. Like, how am I going to feed my kids? You know, like <laughs> type thing. Uh, yeah. So that's interesting. Why would you not consider going, well, why, why would I gamble now? Like, Well, I guess you've just got the money to lose. Is it that or is it like that sense of belonging that we talked about? Probably a combination of both, yeah. Um, you don't want to lose that friendship, that group, the involvement. How hard is it to stop betting once you start? Like once you've laid a, you know, you've placed a few, you've had a few losses. I reckon once you start the account, you're not going to stop. Like what? There's no real reason for you to stop unless you lose everything. The instilled value is if you have money, you have success, you have everything. So that was, the, I suppose, the early instigator that was the drive. And then the more in-depth it gets, or it got for me, it was more about escaping my whole life and my all my issues, emotional issues, and troubles that were going on. So it was easy to just gamble and not think about and worry about other things. Paul Fung is no stranger to addiction. He would gamble on anything and everything. I suppose when we look at gambling, we focus upon the dollar signs and the financial aspect of this. Like the one thing I always say is I lost myself through, at a very young age to almost 30, I lost myself. The person who I'd been, I lost time, I lost relationships. They're the biggest things I lost. Yes, I lost huge amounts of money, but they were the things that I cannot recuperate ever back in my life. For him, the tools used by online betting companies to keep customers is particularly confronting. Like anything, if you go and buy 10 coffees and you're doing it every week, Starbucks wants you as a customer. No different with betting agencies. And they'll do continuous things to entice you back more and more and more. Because that will build the rapport, the trust, and oh no, even though if you're losing or winning money, oh, they're, they're my friend, they'll look after me. So it builds that trust and gain, and that's when they do start to you know, give you more because it's like, okay, I think we've got them now. What else would they like? And, if, and from what I hear and know is that, well, if you, you know, if they haven't, if you haven't access or used um, an account or an organization for a while, there's just a little reminder there, like, hi, how are you going? You know, like a check-in. And even if you might have lost, you know, your last cent of whatever you've got, they'll still check in, hi, how are you going? Making sure, firstly, that you're alive because you're a customer. They still want you back. As long as you're alive, you're a customer. 
Paul's comments might seem extreme. After all, the majority of people don't become addicted to gambling. But the confronting lack of morality within the industry was made shockingly apparent in early February 2022, when gambling company Sportsbet was fined for sending 150,000 texts and emails to 37,000 individuals who had tried to unsubscribe from being contacted by them. For this indiscretion, Sportsbet was handed a $2.7 million fine by the Australian Communications and Media Authority under anti-spam laws. Between 2019 and 2020, Sportsbet revenue went from 618 million US dollars to a staggering 1.48 billion US dollars. After the break, we look at the effect of online gambling on the culture of community sport. We've seen it with the Royal Commissions that have now been held in three states, New South Wales, Victoria and WA. And we've seen those Royal Commissions continually show that the gambling companies are doing their best to keep those regular gamblers and the people that lose to keep them gambling and keep them on, whether at a poker machine or a table or in the case of an online gambling, they're keeping you looking at the app. Go back to the app, look at the app again. And the more people do that, then the more they will put a bet down. A lot of people do have a go at gambling. They keep losing and they go, no, I'll stuff this, this isn't very good because I keep losing. So the other reason why they spend so much money on advertising because they're constantly bringing in new customers who go through that little three to six month period of going, oh yeah, I'll give gambling a go. I think there was one betting CEO who stuffed up once and said that something like 95% of accounts lose or is even higher. It was some phenomenal figure. So essentially, virtually everyone loses. And if you've got an app that's sending you notifications, if you're getting offered little bonus bets and things like that, then people are going to bet a lot more. Like I say, they provide these different sort of options for betting that never used to exist that they're essentially being agreed to by the regulators with no risk assessment at all. This is where the online and having it in your phone, it's essentially becomes a continuous form of gambling. And we've, we've known, again, there's a lot of evidence that shows, and this is why pokies are so dangerous, because it's a continuous form of gambling. You bet, you bet, you bet. So what that does is it trains your brain and you have that ex you're expecting. It's, it's, it's not the actual winning of the thing that gets people addicted to gambling. It's the regularity of it and the expectation, the anticipation that the person is feeling in the lead up to whether they win or lose. So we've talked a lot about our young men. Mm -hmm. Do our females escape this? Yeah, no, they don't. So what we do know is in the 18 to 24 age group, you've got 32% of young men. Um, betting on sports, but you've also got 10% of young women betting on sports. Yeah, that's not a small number. No, it's not. It's really important that young women are also um, educated about the risks of gambling because I don't think at the moment um, they would necessarily be joining the dots uh, mm. around that. Now, I don't know if I'm wording this the right way, but how would you describe the role of sport in like the life cycle of a gambler or the, how would you describe sport in that yep, gambling yep. world? I think it depends on which cohort you're talking about. So if we focus on young men, 
um, because I think that's a one way where you can sort of follow it through. Young men love their sport uh, and they love the excitement of sport. Uh, they love risk-taking. And so gambling kind of adds to the experience of sport for some of them. And they also like getting together and uh, doing doing these things um, with with their mates as well. And so there's therefore a relationship that the um, sports betting operators, I guess, have um, really uh, looked at in terms of how they do their advertising mm. that uh, really sells that message. You get together with a few mates. Um, this this will make the sport. This will make the occasion feel even better. And yeah, take a few risks because that's what young men do. And so is it like an entry point for gambling? Is that what you would call it? So, you know, what, what you're seeing in this, you know, 18 to 24 age group particularly is that first generation that have grown up um, thinking that sport and, and betting do go together. You know, you played a whole lot of sports growing up you know sport was your thing you're like lots of young men coming through school and now we see that sports betting is getting higher and higher and that community sport is a gateway into this world of betting fun betting it's part of the culture of the sport it's it's um you know, part of being involved in that sport. How does that make you feel when you think back? Because that wouldn't have been the case when you were coming through community sport. No, I'd, uh, it makes me sad to even hear that. Like, we play sport because we love the game, you know. Growing up, you know, wasn't even I didn't even know about betting until I really got into the AFL. So it's like, and other guys were doing it. It's like, oh, what's this? You know, a bit of fun. Um... It's definitely not why you start playing the game. It's not why you fall in love with the game. And it's not why I play the game to this day, obviously. The reality that sport and gambling are now entwined is not an accident. Indeed, it's a result of hundreds of millions of dollars of marketing, of saturating our screens, of tapping into our very nature. At an elite level, as well as at a community level, the message is clear. If you have a pump with your mates, you'll belong. And if you don't, you won't. Maybe this next generation is going to be like the kids are growing up and seeing their dads punting all the time. And so if it's at home, it's like, well, I grew up thinking that having six beers a night is normal. You know, so it's like, well, having 30 bets on a Saturday is normal for these kids, you know? like. So that generational pull and power, I think, is something we're not going to know for a few years, but it's something we need to be aware of. You know, they call it first-generation kids, where all they know is sports betting ads and dad having a bet. And, And it doesn't mean dad's having a bet in a way that we can't, you know, put food on the table. Um... But it's just normal. It's just normal. That's just mm. what you do. Yeah, I literally just scared the shit out of myself with what I just said. <laughs> I was thinking about Augie and I was like, far out. I did not want him to think that's normal or okay.
I feel like athletes have done an incredible job, you know, in the last sort of two years around the Black Lives Matters and what the club stands for in that space. The individual athlete really takes responsibility of that and goes out into the community and society and really stands by um, the values around, you know, calling out racism and, and not being racist. But then when we come to something like betting, does the athletes see it as their responsibility to also not bet, you know, say no to betting, set that example by their own behaviour? I don't think so. Well, definitely not at the moment. You know, it's probably saying that we need to look at ourselves with as well, potentially, you know, maybe the influence that we're having. It's definitely not on the radar. I mean, the, the club, the clubs are, are big on it. Like a lot of clubs have stepped away from poker machines and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, so I think there is awareness. I just, yeah, I don't think it's at the, just certainly not at the level of some of those other issues. Within people who play sport in Australia, that sort of smaller club level, whether it be a cricket club or your footy club, there, there's certainly a subset of people who are quite heavily into gambling and and with the growth of online gambling and sports betting and the apps on your phone, I think that's only increased. There hasn't been much studies into specifically how it is in different jurisdictions and what proportion of um, people within clubs and that do gamble. But certainly we hear it at the professional level that gambling is a big, big problem for many sports stars. So you've got that issue. And, and we, we, we see um, ex-cricketers in gambling ads. You know, like they, the gambling companies hire famous people to put in their gambling ads. So this sort of makes it more attractive to people. In 2020, the Spanish government announced a ban on gambling sponsorship and advertising in the country's top football league, La Liga. I was wondering if it's ever likely that Australia will follow suit. We've seen it with smoking. We've seen a, a big sort of back away from alcohol sponsorship in sports as well, though it's still there. But I think they need to pull it back in. You know, like we've got some incredibly weak regulations around direct advertising, like having an advert not within five minutes of a sporting game. I mean, so does that mean when you sit down with your dad and you're a 12 year old watching the rugby league or the game of cricket, you only watch the game. No, of course you're sitting with him for the hour beforehand or the half hour. The industry tries to tell government that it's a normal form of entertainment. Gambling is not like any other form of entertainment that exists, where it has an unlimited cost per hour. We're creating a culture from the very young you know, it's almost like a grooming process of by the time they are at that legal age to gamble, they're ripe and ready like I was. Coming up, we look at the effectiveness of regulation within the industry. Earlier in the episode, Tanya mentioned the Northern Territory's role in licensing sports operators nationally. What this means is that it's also their role to regulate the industry. Recently, we had a scandal up here with the Darwin Turf Club. We received $20 million from the government to contribute to a new venue. Our independent corruption 
found the whole thing was corrupt. So the committee of the Darwin Turf Club was um, pretty well told you got to sack yourselves or, you know, quit. But the previous chairman of the Racing Commission is now the chairman of the Darwin Turf Club. So the organisation that was meant to be going, if someone complains about a betting company and decides whether they've done something wrong or not, is now the head of the Darwin Turf Club. So I think that says something, you know, it's a, it's a very small place, um, the territory. Basically, you've got the legislators, the regulators, and the judiciary all in the same department up here. So it's like having the police, the politicians, and the judges all working in the same room. So there's no independence, basically, I think is the biggest problem. I mean, given we're a very small jurisdiction, it's sort of, it is questionable how much actual regulation of the industry and checking of the industry is going on. I think the industry is bringing so much money into the game, so much sponsorship, so much advertising, and like there's definitely that side of it. But I think, I, I think the fact that you think that these companies are like a mate of yours or they're part of your group chat is scary. Guys will be getting sucked in at you know, 17, 18, or younger um, and it would just be continuing for the rest of their life and you just who knows if they're going to become a problem gamer or not i feel like there needs to be some sort of accountability somewhere in 2020 in victoria the gambling industry spent 71 million dollars which doesn't include sponsorships and doesn't include their direct marketing so that's essentially spend on what you're seeing on your screens so a lot, of, a lot of that spend is affected by the amount of competition in the industry because you've got them competing with one another for market share. And what would be required to reduce that? Is that, who makes that decision? How does, how do we reduce that? So one of the ways that could be um, reduced is for the federal government to ban sports betting advertising. This is something that people care a lot about. And so depending on where the community sentiment is at, it could absolutely change. I think the whole the model is isn't just not fit for purpose anymore. Your phones are addictive enough as they are without having addictive apps on them. You know, to add this on top of that as well, it's just a little addiction nuclear bomb. Throughout this series, we've heard from a lot of elite sports people well into their long-haul careers. In the next episode, we go back to the start of the journey. Grant Hackett takes Emma inside his early days, starting out as a kid. And for a fresher perspective, we meet two up-and-coming stars of Australian gymnastics. Hear firsthand the gruelling regimes and the mindset of what it takes to be driven at such a young age. The Long Haul is a Ranieri & Co. and Headline Productions podcast. Our host is Emma Murray. This episode was produced by Simon Portis and me, Liz Keane. Editing was by Simon Portis. Theme music was by Kenneth Lample. Special thanks to Nick Randall, Robbie Ranieri, Matt Stevens, Josh Bruce, Paul Fung, Tanya Fletcher and Patrick Gallus. If you or someone you know is having problems with gambling, contact the Gambler's Helpline on 1800 858 858 or you can go to gamblershelp.com.au.